Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and today we have our fourth episode covering the FTX meltdown. Joining us today on the other side of the mic is our guest, Dan Besikoff, partner at law firm Loeb & Loeb, as well as our other guest, Mark Shapiro, partner and chair of the financial restructuring group at the law firm Sherman & Sterling. Today, we're going to be discussing and unpacking the legal ramifications of FTX bankruptcy and restructuring process, including how the process works, what we might expect to happen next. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Huobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset management services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Huobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and your assets. Learn more today at Huobi.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at Ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests, Dan and Mark, for joining us. Gentlemen, I'm sure it's been a busy time for all of us except for Dan, who's on vacation, thanks for thanks for stepping in and uh, leaving the the golf clubs aside for a moment. Before we get into some of the more thorny particulars of of exactly what's going on, Mark, I was hoping that you could set the stage or foundation for us. I think a lot of people, especially in crypto, are just becoming familiar with these processes. Chapter 11 versus Chapter 7 versus Chapter 15. To many people, it's a very confusing potpourri of of the word chapter and numbers, and they're probably a bit confused. So as someone who's been doing this for decades, maybe walk us through exactly where we are in, in this process. I remember when we were talking on the phone yesterday, you kind of described it as almost like part one, fact-finding mission, part two, kind of nailing down the assets, finding the value they're checking under couch cushions, perhaps looking for cryptos that might have gone missing. What what exactly is happening at a very basic level, and and how would you break down maybe those those different um, aspects of the process? Sure, ha happy to, Frank, and thanks for having me. So, Chapter Eleven is the statutory framework under the federal laws for reorganiz reorganization of of corporations uh, and companies. And um, FTX uh, has found itself in the midst of a Chapter 11 set of filings, uh, as everyone knows recently. Um, and, and the main purpose of Chapter 11, frankly, is to provide companies with a breathing spell so that they have the time to figure out what they can do typically. Uh, usually it's a company that's run short of liquidity or a company that's in a sector that's facing serious financial problems. And this gives this gives them the framework to find a solution to that, both from a financing standpoint as well as from a balance sheet standpoint. FTX, however, found itself in Chapter Eleven very quickly, as mm -hmm. everyone as everyone has read, um, because of the nature of what happened here, the very fast downfall of an exchange, the very fast downfall of a trading company, uh, and and therefore led to a couple of things happening. One. Uh, the company um, filing for Chapter 11 voluntarily to the company putting into place new people who are running the Chapter 11 case. In this case, uh, John Ray, who's a, a person who's done this before for other companies, including um, OSG Shipping and Enron. Uh, they've put into place a, a consulting firm, Alvarez and Marcel, and then there's uh, the law firms who are representing the company as well in the, in the cases. Um, so what's happened so far? Uh, there was a first day hearing yesterday in the bankruptcy court in Delaware. 
Um, during that during that time, the lawyers put on essentially a presentation on what has happened so far. And what I'd say is that they are focused on uh, first implementing controls over what's happening. There are four silos that they identified in the in the business context of these businesses, uh, including the trading firm Alameda, the the exchange uh, FTX, and one or two other businesses that that house venture venture investments that they made. Um, and so you've got these different silos, all of which are housed in different corporations technically, but they all appear to be related to each other. And we'll probably learn more about their relationships as as time goes on. So the first thing they're trying to do is get their arms around what do each of these companies have. Um, second, they're trying to protect the assets. As you may have read uh, yesterday, they announced that there were there have been threat thefts, and the Department of Justice, including the Southern District of New York, is looking into them and has opened a criminal investigation. So they're trying to make sure that they protect the assets. Third is that they want to provide transparency to creditors and other people who have stakes in this. Um, and so they need to provide that uh, you know, on a regular basis. Finally, they obviously have to coordinate with other jurisdictions. Uh, there's a joint provisional liquidation for one of the companies in the Bahamas, uh, in which two partners at a, an accounting firm have been appointed under the supervision of a Bahamas court, and they, they need to coordinate with that. And then finally, and this is the case in every Chapter 11, they need to try to maximize the value of the estates um, yeah. for the benefit of creditors. So that's really what's going on so far. So it's kind of, it's kind of basically the the core, if you will, of what the company does on a day to day basis has gone from facilitating exchange of assets, as it were, to let's say preserving assets and implementing the controls that weren't there in the first place. Is that is that a fair way to sort of boil it down? Yeah, look, these companies went from, we'll call them trading and entering into commercial relationships with customers through the exchange, right? That was their purported businesses to not running those businesses anymore because no one's trading with them. No one's putting new coin with them. And now they're basically in, how do we ultimately sort out all the problems that have occurred here? How do we sort out the assets that we have, and how do we monetize those assets for value? And then ultimately, you know, there'll be lots of litigation here, undoubtedly, uh, that we can certainly chat about more, uh, and that will be part of all this. So we're really in preservation mode, liquid, probably we'll call it liquidation mode, uh, and then distribution mode, which is the end of every Chapter 11 case. And right now they're trying to keep that that ice from melting. This is what you said on the phone yesterday. We want to we want to keep as much as this ice cube intact as possible before it completely disappears. And that could happen yeah. very quickly with these assets that are, I mean, m much of the assets are in a token that they created out of thin air in a sense. Yeah. Look, I don't, you know, unlike some businesses where, you know, people uh, or the assets can deteriorate very quickly, it's not clear whether these assets will or won't deteriorate quickly. I think they've indicated already that they're going to move quickly to sell some of the assets. Uh, so obviously the uncertainty associated with many of the businesses that they own or they've acquired recently, people who work there are deciding, do I wanna stay here, not? Do I wanna continue to do business with my clients here or somewhere else? And so it's usually incumbent upon the owners of those kinds of businesses to sell them quickly so that they can you know, capture whatever value they can from them while they're still going concerns. Dan, I feel like this would be a really good sitcom. You know, it could be called chapter 11 and you get the inside look at what, what's going on inside a firm that is going through this process, all the drama, the romance, et cetera. Did you watch the, did you listen into the hearing yesterday? Yes, I, I did. And and I think I might be the only person who would watch a sitcom about Chapter Eleven, uh, but 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 I like the idea. I I think I'd I'd get in on that. So what were what were some of the big takeaways? I I think for me one of the more interesting aspects of what the lawyers said was the fact that there's still 240 people here. And, and Mark, we talked about this yesterday. There are many different reasons why folks stay. Part of it might be. Just, you know, personal reasons, obviously it's hard to find a job, especially when you're working at a company that is, you know, that has a reputation that's tarnished in this way. Um, but, but Dan, did anything stand out or were you surprised or 
intrigued by anything that was outlined? Yeah, a couple things. You know, to the point about the 240 people remaining on staff, they have a lot of work to do here. Um, you, you know, they've brought in a new a new set of bosses who will, uh, as they said, write things down um, and you know keep records and figure out what the assets are and figure out what business lines are viable. But in order to do that, they need to speak to the people who actually ran those business lines and know what's what's happening, you know, kind of under the hood. Um, so it's not surprising that they still have a good number of employees. I guess it's a little surprising that those employees have stuck around or have been willing to stick around. And I think at some point we'll see the debtors probably try to make some kind of a motion to pay those folks a bonus to make sure that they don't leave. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing that I thought was interesting is, is there were little nuggets yesterday where, where you could tell that the lawyers for the U.S. debtors were kind of planting their flag in advance of a perceived fight or a potential fight with the Bahamas uh, joint mm. provisional liquidators. There were a few instances where they talked about where the, where the employees sit, and they were very careful to say these employees are in the United States. Uh, they talked about where the assets are and where the um, – you know, where, where the customers are. And it was, oh, these are not in the Bahamas. And so I do think they were sort of setting the stage, although it wasn't on for the hearing yesterday. They seem to be setting the stage um, for whatever showdown comes to be with the, with the Bahamas folks. Um, otherwise, I think Mark described it. It was really kind of a, a, an overview of what happened how the company, you know, went from the the darling of the crypto business, the company that everyone else turned to for bailouts when their crypto company went went south to the, you know, the company that's now causing the most disruption. Um, and and that's pretty much it. They did a good job of distracting us with really fancy hats and well-produced conferences. Uh, in hindsight, it feels like glitter was being thrown in our eyes. One thing that was revealed yesterday, I think it was revealed yesterday, was the list of the largest 50 creditors, but they were all redacted, um, which was interesting to me. I'm sure that there's a wide range of reasons to redact those names, but it made me uh, or got me thinking rather what what will the breakdown be? I'm sure most people listening are probably thinking, Frank, just ask them when I'm going to get my money, which is a very complicated question because it, it, it kind of results in many other questions um, stemming from that. One of which is who gets paid first? Is it, is it the investors? Is it the, the venture backers? Is it the, is it the large trading firm counterparties? Is it the retail customers that had a few hundred bucks parked on the on the exchange? I don't know if you saw that New York Times or Wall Street art, uh, Wall Street Journal article about the guy who had eight hundred bucks. And well, I don't want to make fun of him, but I just thought it was funny because there are people who've lost millions. But in any case, how would you, um, Dan? How would you sort of go about answering that question first? To what extent do you think people will get paid back? And then the second question. Well, will there be certain groups that are prioritized in terms of re receiving funds? So, um, you know, in terms of how much and when people will get paid back, it's just too soon to say. And all the questions that you just raised about who goes first and who's going to have priority um, are questions that are, are going to be fact intensive. And I'll just give you one example. If there are customers who have coins that are held in custodial accounts where the where the property of those uh, the property interest in those coins remains with the customers and if those coins are sitting there in an easily identifiable account you know earmarked for for particular custodial customers it seems to me that those people should just get their coins back and that should happen relatively quickly now relatively quickly is is the relative is doing a lot of work there 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 are um there's a parallel to this in in celsius there's a group of custody holders 
And in that case, the, the debtor, the committee, and the custody people all seem to agree that those coins are property of the custody uh, creditors. And the debtor is trying to give at least some of them back. And we're now, you know, six months into that case and not a dollar of coin has been given back. And so relative is 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 the operative word. But, it, you know, the, the custodial holders should get their coins out first. Everybody else is going to get treated in accordance with the bankruptcy code. And the bankruptcy code has a priority scheme that pays out, you know, just roughly speaking and very generally speaking, it pays out secured creditors first. So if there are creditors who have security interests in any of the assets, they should get paid, uh, you know, with priority over unsecured creditors, and then it'll be unsecured creditors and then equity holders. Mark, when we were at Sherman's conference last week, you you made the point on stage about how Lehman's Chapter 11 process has only finally ended. And that could speak that speaks to how long this process could be drawn out. Maybe you can walk us down. Uh, you could take us down a trip uh, on memory lane. You were inside there as head of restructuring for the erstwhile firm. What what was the environment like, and and what parallels do you see? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the environment. I was I was called in to help think about what to do three days before we ended up filing. So obviously I was not uh, given a lot of time to consider our alternatives, um, and w- which turned out to be not many. Um, and so when we were faced that Sunday afternoon with a liquidity problem in Asia that we couldn't fund and our UK company, our international company went into administration in, the, in England, uh, we decided to file the holding company for Chapter 11 in the U.S. and then hope that we could keep the rest of the businesses intact long enough to sell them. And, and that's essentially what we ended up doing. Um, what the environment was like, uh, hectic, chaotic people, you know, every, everyone saw on television the people walking out the firm, out of the firm with their boxes. Um, you know, for me, it was how do I figure out a strategy to sell ourselves and save the 10,000 jobs that were in uh, 745 7th Avenue at the time? Um, and of course, to do the best we could under the circumstances from a value recovery standpoint for, for the estate. Um, and, and you know, we spent, unlike this case where there's, there was no fraud in Lehman, uh, Lehman was a public company, had financial, audited financials, um, so we didn't have many of the same issues that your fate that they're that are being dealt with in the FTX cases, where you have an individual small company privately held, uh, run by you know we'll call them young young adults at best, um, who who you know who showed no real oversight on what they needed to do you know in managing billions of dollars of other people's money. That was just not the case. You didn't have the you didn't have the CEO of Lehman tweeting from his Bahamian uh, palace about what had happened. No, I I never saw Dick Fold send out a tweet. So, um, which might have been interesting had he, but um, but uh, so you know there you know we had the difference between the two is that Lehman could have led and did lead to a systemic crisis in the financial system, right where. People, the government worried about other banks potentially failing and ended up having to provide, you know, loans of last resort to many financial institutions in this country uh, as a result to preserve the financial banking system. This, on the other hand, has not had any systemic impact uh, in our financial world outside of crypto. In the crypto world, I think we went from, you know, uh, a crypto winter winter to a crypto blizzard. yeah, so that's or what I think. You know, ice people, age. We're in the ice age, the crypto ice age. But that said, we have not seen any consequences in the regular financial system from any of this. It's all really been pretty limited to the firms that that are in the crypto ecosystem, and so that's a big difference. Uh, and that's why, while this is all going to get carefully reviewed by the government, and while I have no doubt that there will be additional regulatory oversight when this is all said and done over the coming years, um, there was a you know there's a fundamental difference between 
um, a small private firm dealing in crypto and a large global investment bank with you know with relationships across the world failing. Um, and so um, and then to your point about timing and, and Dan's point about timing, you know, these take on their own life. Uh, and it's extremely difficult to predict how long it will take. How long you you might ultimately find that there'll be distributions made, you know, one to three years from now. Uh, again, depending on the nature of the of the um, of the creditor or the customer, uh, and then there'll be litigation that's likely to go on for many years from now, and then there'll be distributions from from that potentially too. So it's very hard to predict this, but you know what what we can say, both Dan and I think, is that these processes take on their own life, uh, and you know the the professionals who are running them will have a lot to do over the next couple of years, and um, and we'll learn a lot of interesting things along the way. I asked on Twitter a few days ago who will come out of this crypto capital markets contagion event crisis meltdown the strongest, and someone responded, Sullivan and Cromwell, which I thought was very funny. Um, but if we if we think about maybe this question of the different jurisdictions, right? Um, I want to dig in, like, why would they want a separate filing in, in the Southern District of New York versus Delaware? And, the, and then there's also the, the Bahamian element who's also trying to navigate this or shepherd this process. How will that hash out? Maybe, Dan. Sure. So the Bahamas appointed the joint provisional liquidators over... FTX Digital, which is one entity out of, you know, a hundred some, uh, but but evidently a, a fairly important trading entity based in the Bahamas. And the Bahamas uh, regulators have a pretty significant interest in making sure that, you know, companies in the Bahamas behave properly and that, mm. you know, when, when they don't, the laws of the Bahamas are applied and that, um, you know, Bahamian, uh, you know, creditors and employees are treated fairly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what they've done is just tried to stake out a position to, to maximize their influence on the overall restructuring or liquidation of FTX. And, um, you know, particularly because the records are such a mess um, and particularly because I don't even know that anyone knows exactly what FTX owns and which entities own those assets and where the creditors sit. I, I think there's a lot of of egg to unscramble on that on that type of thing. There's going to be a, perhaps a battle uh, between the the folks down in the Bahamas and the the U.S. debtors over you know where where certain assets sit. Who owes the money? Um, it'll be interesting to see who who the who decides these issues. What forum these issues will be decided in? The one thing that I think is a positive is the the liquidators agreed to move the Chapter 15 case, which is kind of the U.S. recognition proceeding relating to the the Bahamas liquidation proceeding to Delaware. So that should help in terms of coordination and ideally you'd see the U.S. debtors and the Bahamas liquidators coordinating with one another on these assets, uh, you know, on these issues about assets and creditors and jurisdictional issues and and working out something that's efficient and effective to get to the end and not, you know, not having territory battles. What What's the government's role in these Chapter 11 cases? The lawyer said yesterday, as far as I can recall, that a criminal investigation is likely to be undertaken by the Department of Justice. How, you know, since there is maybe a fraud element um, that that might impact how this this case unfolds, and perhaps the SEC, CFTC might be involved. How would you sort of explain the government's role in this process, Mark? As much as you can tell. Yeah, I mean, I think the government is likely to have a multifaceted role in this case. Um, first of all, you've got a number of regulators who probably are going to be looking carefully at what happened here, doing their own work and their own investigation, which includes the SEC and the CFTC, uh, who you know who might 
you know, purport to have jurisdiction over some some of these businesses. Uh, number one, uh, and we'll be thinking about what the consequences of of this are, and and there are some legal issues as to you know is co- our coin is coin a security, uh, and that therefore governed and you know with the oversight from the Securities Exchange Commission, or is it something else? Uh, so you've got derivatives, you've got the CFTC, you've got that to start. Then you've got the criminal, the potential criminal investigation. Nobody knows if there was a crime committed yet. So, um, and and that will be determined by the Department of Justice. Uh, and I think it's the the uh, Cyber Crimes Unit. I read of the Southern District of New York is taking the lead on that. Um, so they will be doing their own fact finding. Of course, one of the things I have seen in some of the other cases I've, w- I've worked on where crim- you know criminal intent was considered is those investigations usually take precedence over. The civil investigations that have to take place in the bankruptcy case itself, where people are trying to figure out what happened, who did what to whom, you know, and and how do you trace tracing assets, tracing things. The 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 Department of Justice typically takes precedence over that. They'll be first uh, in terms of doing that, and then the facts will come out eventually as to what happened here. If people are charged with crimes in this case, that could impact ultimately what happens here because. Some of the people here are likely to get sued. You know, SBF is likely to get sued by many people, you know, coming out of this. And his his personal status, you know, is he going to be someone who has any net worth when this is all said and done? Does he have any assets that anyone can get at in a litigation? Will his be parents, he, his be, parents have that lovely $100 million plus Bahamian property. Yeah. So we don't know, for example, and I'm just speculating whether he bought that for his parents. And if he did, whose money was it when they when he bought it? And so all of these things are going to be scrutinized. Uh, and there'll be, you know, eventually there'll be a very interesting book coming out of all this as to actually what happened, kind of like too big to fail. So we'll see what the name of this this book will be called. Frank, maybe you're gonna be, you know, writing it. If they give me some time off, I, I'd consider it. Um I would imagine the book would would have a silhouette of his hairdo on it. I think it, it has to. That he might get sued for. I mean, his hairstyle is is probably the biggest crime. So to answer your question, I think those are the principal roles of the government. And then, of course, the government is um, overseeing the bankruptcy indirectly because we're talking about a federal court and a federal judge. The, one of the things that Dan and I chatted about briefly was there's, there's no unsecured committee that's been appointed here. That's mm-hmm. That happens in every bankruptcy case. And it will be interesting to see um, how that happens because you do have these different silos, each of which has different companies. And the relationship between those companies is likely to be the subject of dispute in terms of transfers of assets back and forth and who's a creditor of which box. So it's going to be very interesting. And all of that's going to you know take time to sort out. And will those different silos impact how payment is ultimately made in the end of this situation? Will Is there a chance that certain silos might be prioritized or be able to kind of ascertain more assets than, than another silo? How does that, how does that work, Dan? Yeah, certainly it could, uh, uh, you know, affect recoveries. Generally speaking, a, a creditor has a claim against a particular debtor. And so here there are 102 or 130 or whatever the number is. There are many, many debtors. But the creditor's claims, unless they have claims against multiple debtors, mm. generally are against one particular entity. And while the cases are, are jointly administered and are handled on a consolidated basis, that's really just for, uh, for purposes of convenience. You know, it's almost as though there are 130 individual chapter 11 cases happening. And so if if you've got a claim at a debtor that has a lot of assets and not a lot of other creditors, you're likely to do better than if you have a claim against a debtor that has no assets and a lot of other creditors. Now there's an exception to that. Sometimes debtors will will do something called substantive consolidation, which is basically they say this is too messy the interests of creditors and justice requires that we just lump everybody together. 
And so everybody's claims against every entity are going to be treated as, as, you know, one and all the assets will be treated as, as one and they eliminate that distinction. It's a, a reasonably high bar for doing that. And I don't have any information suggesting that's appropriate or not here. Uh, but, but almost certainly absent substantive consolidation, the, the place where you hold your claim or the, the debtor against which you hold your claim will matter for purposes of how much money you'll get out of the case at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, in uh, in connection with what Dan just said, it's what's interesting, you know, what will be interesting in terms of the fact are whether these businesses were maintained separately or not. And, you know, there are many allegations that assets moved from one entity to the other. There was no, you know, apparent um, separation. Uh, you know, the same people were running that, running these companies. And so it'll be very interesting to see there will be some, potentially some creditors, as Dan said, that will want their entity to be the entity that they get a recovery from. Uh, and there'll be others who want to see everything put together um, because because of the way these companies ultimately conducted themselves. So it's going to be an interesting, that's going to be an interesting uh, set of issues that'll probably get litigated down the road in the Chapter 11 cases. Wobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Wobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, building the go-to hub for the next billion crypto users. Wobi believes crypto shouldn't have any barriers to entry. Wobi is committed to asset and platform security to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and your assets. Learn more today at Wobi.com. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin back loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. I'm sure this is going to have a wide range of knock-on effects that will cover the entire crypto landscape. We've already seen that in terms of potential bankruptcies following FTX with Genesis, but I imagine there'll be longer term consequences that are legal, regulatory, financial. Honestly, it could completely reshape the way crypto's capital markets operate. Mark, what are some particulars that you imagine might come to fruition? I think to start, and this is, I think, fairly obvious, uh, there's going to be, there already are calls for much greater regulatory oversight over crypto businesses, particularly those that are taking customer and retail uh, retail deposits and, and retail arrangements. Uh, and so you're going to start with that, you know, and, and we've seen where an exchange that does operate properly is fine. Take Coinbase, for example. Coinbase is, is doing well. Coinbase is not in the same position as FTX because Coinbase is a publicly uh, traded company that has financial audit oversight as well as regulatory oversight uh, and has, you know, has, has holding assets against customer deposits and customer accounts. Um, so I think we're going to move to, you know, what I would call a custodial set of arrangements that's going to be required, just like it's required in the securities and brokerage business, right? Where we know that we know that um, you know a securities firm that is taking deposits or, or holding securities of customers has to comply with certain you know regulatory oversights, and obviously in in the case of, of broker dealers, you have CIPIC insurance. So I think you know the first and foremost is we're going to see much more oversight, and you've seen that. Um, I think one of the Fed governors called on Congress to, you know, start enacting some laws to to deal with that. And I think you'll see the FTC 
sorry, the CFTC and the SEC uh, trying to figure out what roles they play. Uh, just to add on to that, I, I think, you know, a, a regulatory scheme along the lines of SIPC would be really helpful here. Um, I, first, it would provide a, a great deal of protection for customers. You know, there's there's $500,000 of what SIPC does not like to call insurance, but is functionally insurance for account holders of broker dealers. Um, and that means that the the moms and pops who invest a small amount of money or a relatively small amount of money get out of a, a broker dealer insolvency whole. Um, the other thing though, is it would provide, I think a great deal more clarity around issues like who owns the coins, you know, in a SIPC broker dealer and, and other issues, including like, how do you value the, your claim in the bankruptcy case in a normal bankruptcy case, you, you have a claim denominated in U.S. dollars, uh, you know, as of the petition date. In a, in a case involving crypto, you have uh, people who want their coins back. They have a claim for Bitcoin or for, you know, uh, U.S. dollar coin or whatever it is. Um, SIPIC would provide a nice framework for, for deeming um, – the coins to be property of the customers and enabling the customers to get their coins back much more quickly. And so, you know, I, I know the industry, the crypto industry sort of resists. Um, well, that's what I was just going to say. Why, but why, why, why isn't something like this already in place? Uh, and do you think that industry participants would be receptive to implementing something uh, akin to SIPIC insurance? Yeah, it seems like the industry has resisted um, regulation, but it seems to me that if you're a customer who is is investing in crypto, maybe you don't want a tremendous amount of regulation, but you'd at least like to know that the place that's holding your crypto is a legitimate business and that it's capitalized and that what they're telling you about the business in terms of the risk factors of depositing substantial, you know, crypto assets with that, with that company are actually true. And I can't imagine that there are too many investors in crypto who would feel um, upset about the idea that there's some crypto industry funded uh, pot of funds available to, to help bail people out when there is an insolvency. The other thing about the, the, the SIPIC model, and it, it may not be SIPIC, it may be something that's like SIPIC for the crypto industry, is that, that that pot of funds is not funded by the government. It's funded by the, you know, the community of companies that, that are the broker dealers. Um, and so it creates a bit of accountability just among your peers. You don't want to be the one who costs everybody billions of dollars in bailout funds. And so something along those lines, and I'm not a, you know, a, an expert on regulatory issues, but it does seem like there's something that could be done to, to just boost accountability and to provide some protection to investors that would go a long way to, to help the industry sort of take the next step from, from a, a kind of a fringe but growing industry to something that's really adopted by by the mainstream of of you know society and investors mark would you add anything to that are there any other ways that the industry can kind of grow up i would add that um in order for the industry to ultimately to continue to grow it's going to need institutional investors to continue to be interested in the asset class and and after this debacle it would be very difficult for a large pension fund, a large money manager. These poor Canadian pension funds, Mark, they can't catch a break. First <laughs> with Celsius and now with FTX, and it's only Canadian. These poor, these poor Canadian teachers. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I know the Canadians are taking it on the chin in these in these, in these situations, unfortunately, um, and they happen to be great people. But um, I think the institutional investors who are interested in this as an asset class, right? Like if you're supposed to be putting a certain amount of, of your assets into different asset classes, and this represents theoretically one of them, I think you're going to only do that after all of this, if there's a framework, as Dan suggested, for safety. 
And we just haven't had that. Why haven't we had that? Well, you think about, you start with the whole notion that this coin, all coins, right, were emanating from a decentralized financial system theory. So these were not people who want to be conventional. These were people who want to be outside the system, number one. Number two, these are technology people. Technology people don't like regulation. And so they didn't want regulation, right? Um, so I think that now that we've had this blow up, uh, everyone will understand that this is really no different than dealing in securities. And there's going to have to be some way for people to protect themselves um, or the government will allow, you know, some people to invest in this, but with a full understanding that, you know, that they're completely at risk, which is really what's, I think, happened so far. But now that it's become so public and so much money has been lost, um, I think the paternalistic side of the government is going to take over and, and, and try to do something about protecting investors. It is pretty ironic, or there's a, there's a bit of irony in the fact that this gentleman, Sam Bankman-Fried, was constantly in Washington and asking for more regulation. I, it's almost a tangent in terms of the, the core of what this conversation has been about, but it's hard not to reflect on it and think, what was the end game there? Because if we had some of the procedures or regulations that we think would be appropriate borrowing from Wall Street, surely, I mean, the House of Cards would have would have tumbled or the lack of controls would have been revealed. It's stunning to me. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that, but it's pretty wild. It certainly is. The only thing I can say to that is had the had the regulations been put in place when the crypto prices were high and people were not as bullish on crypto, there may have been a totally different outcome where where you know the crypto exchanges might have had an opportunity to clean up their act uh, you know collectively without it causing a you know an incredible run on the bank. There could have been an, maybe a more orderly process had the regulations actually been put in place and maybe the the prospect of the regulations themselves would have even inspired confidence to avoid, you know, the kind of bank run that's that's been the downfall of all these different entities. But it is weird, you know, a guy who who was doing absolutely nothing right, evidently, um, looking for more oversight to point out his deficiencies. I'm mean, <laughs> not sure. Well, either that or a, a brilliant cover story, right? Um, or he just didn't know. He really didn't know that he was doing it wrong. I mean, I think if you read that the that tweet storm from a couple of weeks ago, his initial thing about how he fucked up, he he says he didn't know. Maybe he just didn't know. It's it's possible, I guess. It's it's upsetting if he didn't because he was in charge of you know billions of dollars of other people's money. You'd hope he would know, uh, but maybe he didn't. It sounded like it's possible. I'm hearing this from more and more people. And I think it's kind of a controversial take. It's clear that this was a complete failure of a business, but there's a fine line, right, between woeful mismanagement and fraud. If he didn't have the proper controls in place, and it sounds like it was just a mess, and he kind of approached this as if it was like a video game and thought he had funds there, thought he had funds there, but it very well could be the case that he just had no idea what was going on. Now, that's one perspective. The other perspective is that, you know, he could have had intent there. Maybe the back door existed since the beginning, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's hard to tell. I don't think we have necessarily those facts yet. And, you know, Mark, you made a, an interesting point on the phone yesterday about how uh, in the, in the case of Madoff, I mean, the books were meticulous and it's almost like it was a very, if it was a fraud, clearly it was a very well-run fraud. If this was a fraud, it was not a very well-run fraud. And they were able to get 63 cents on the dollar creditors in that instance. Um, and maybe because it was, it was run, uh, as meticulously as a fraud can, can be run. Well, the look, one of the differences is that um, Madoff wasn't connected to the markets. This was directly correlated to the markets and what happened in the markets with the price of Bitcoin going down, things being illiquid, 
and them having leverage. And I think it's Warren Buffett who said, when the tide goes out, you can see you know whose whose bathing suit is no longer on them, right? And so had you know had the price of Bitcoin stayed high, had people continued to fund these businesses, this might have all been okay for you know another X months or X years, right? But when it all fell apart because of the markets, very quickly it became apparent that you know he didn't have the assets he needed to pay for the things you know pay off his creditors and pay off. Um, margin loans and other things that he needed to to deal with, and I suspect that, um, like a lot of you know a lot of people who, when they're faced with you know a, a real problem, he he might have panicked. He he might have thought he was going to put assets back when he you know he took them. We'll never know, and it's probably the only one who'll actually know is 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 him. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter in my view because he took assets that were not his. And those people are going to lose a lot of money, and and that's that's really the the crime of it, if there is a crime here. I was going to say the same thing. It's really just a matter of intent, whether he did it on purpose or whether he was just you know grossly negligent about running a business involving billions of dollars of other people's money. The the outcome is the same for the investors. Uh, you know, most likely, maybe there are some some legal distinctions like Madoff was a Ponzi scheme. I'm not sure this is, but, uh, you know, maybe there's some legal distinction. But it, but in reality, the, the consequence is the same for the investors. And um, it's almost more about, you know, is there criminal liability for doing something on purpose versus doing something poorly? Maybe that's an issue. Maybe it's an issue of sort of public perception of his legacy uh, you know, was he a really bad guy or was he just bad at his job? Um, you know, I, I, maybe it's neither, maybe there's something in between, but it, it, it doesn't yeah. really matter. I think to Mark's yeah. point, it's, it gets you to the, the same spot at the end of the day. Yeah. Was he, was he stupid or evil? I think is the dichotomy there and it doesn't <laughs> neither matter. Neither one is good. You don't want to be described as either one. It goes, you know, Frank, it goes back to Superman 3. I don't know if you're a Superman fan, right? Superman, like Clark Kent, split himself into, you know, Clark Kent and Superman, and there was the the good one and the bad one. And I suspect that, you know, SBF had a little bit of of Superman good and bad in him when all this came down. Yeah, um, the duality of man, as it were. Any other closing, lingering thoughts? I want to be respectful of both of your time. But anything you guys will be watching or, or looking as it pertains to this case over the next few weeks? Yeah, look, over the next few weeks, I don't think anything terribly major is going to happen. I think, as Mark said at the beginning, they're, they're going to use the automatic stay from the Chapter 11 case and, you know, really take a breath, figure out what they have, figure out what's viable. And we'll see motions come through and, you know, other court things to kind of advance that agenda. And I'm sure to the extent they do some some stuff that's good, find some assets or implement some controls, they'll let everybody know uh, because that will, you know, help bolster their ability to move forward. I think the thing that we haven't really talked about that'll be interesting in the case is assuming there's not a, a like a, a reorganization of this business and that it doesn't come out as a going concern looking similar to what it went in looking like, there's going to be an awful lot of litigation in the case. Uh, you know, SBF will get sued by the estate and the directors and officers will get sued and people they gave money to, uh, you know, charitable donations. I gather they gave away a lot of money to charity and invested in a lot of speculative startups. And a lot of these folks, plus, you know, customer redemptions, there's going to be a lot of litigation. And I think that is actually going to be pretty interesting. It has parallels to Madoff in the sense that, you know, there's litigation that, that is still going on. Madoff filed in 2010, uh, I believe, and the litigation is still going on now, um, 2008, actually, and 2008 or 10, don't remember, doesn't matter. But the litigation is still going on 10, 12 years later. Um, and I have to think there's going to be a similar kind of wave of litigation that happens. And it could have a meaningful impact on how much money creditors are able to recover at the end of the day. If you look at Madoff, 
we talked about the 65 cents or whatever the CIPIC trustee has been able to pay out there at the, at the date of the filing, the CIPIC trustee didn't have really much of anything. He went out and sued everybody and brought back in billions of dollars. And it may be that that has to happen here too, um, which is just going to extend the life of this case, you know, beyond the year or two that Mark was mentioning at the beginning to kind of work through the restructuring or the liquidation or whatever it's going to look like. There's going to be years and years of litigation afterwards that'll be interesting to watch and I'm sure is going to create a whole bunch of new law that for, you know, fraudulent transfer nerds like myself will be, you know, very interesting to follow. <laughs> yeah, this is good news for the lawyers. Yeah, well, look, I, I'm a I'm a baseball fan and, you know, we're in we're in the first inning of what is at least the nine inning game and maybe longer. Um and I think there's going to be some actually, you know, to the point that Dan raised about litigation, there's going to be some really interesting issues that come out of it down the road. So the difference, for example, in Madoff, you didn't have securities. People were investing in Madoff. They were giving Madoff money and they were getting they were getting a return. Here you had people buying and selling what might be viewed as securities in coin, um, futures, other thing, other derivatives. Um you're going to have, you know, fraudulent conveyance is likely to be uh, a, a large issue, but you also have defenses to fraudulent conveyance under the bankruptcy safe harbors, which protect um, against people having to give back settlement money, margin money, uh, derivative closeouts. So you, you're going to have some very interesting, probably novel legal issues that are going to come up in the context of potential fraudulent conveyance litigation that we have not seen before. So I, mm. I think. Yeah, I think we're in for some interesting, interesting times around those issues. We took those uh, safe harbor issues up to the Supreme Court in Madoff. And I think some of your colleagues uh, were involved in some of those safe harbor issues, even in Madoff too, Mark. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how they're applied here. I mean, are they securities? Are they not securities? Are these, you know, the, these entities, the, you know, the right type of market participant? It'll be very interesting to see. Yep. I think, Frank, my advice would be get a beer, get a hot dog and stay tuned. <laughs> I'm, I can definitely I can definitely do that. Um, just one other closing thought or question. To what degree is this unprecedented? We're hearing that word thrown around a lot. Even the new CEO of FTX said this was, you know, the, the, the most egregious example of a lack of corporate controls that he's ever seen worse than Enron. Is this, is this something that's historic? Like, will this be in legal textbooks that, you know, folks will have to sort of digest and really understand because it'll shape the way capital markets laws are, are written in the future, et cetera. I mean, I think this is just one of the many uh, blowups that we've seen in this country around, you know, financial firms, right? Going back to, uh, you know, Oakmont, MF Global, Revco, Lehman Brothers, this one, we've seen many. And I wouldn't say this is unprecedented. I would say this is different because of the apparent way that these businesses got managed. Those were all theoretically professionally run institutions. This one looks like it wasn't. That said, it's just going to be another one of these situations. And we, where this one is different is that will it will impact the crypto world and the crypto ecosystem, we'll call it, um, which is different than you know some of the other some of the other types of financial institutions that we've seen. So that's how I see it's different. But I don't think it's so unprecedented in the history of American failures. Yeah, I tend to agree. It it is kind of very much along those lines, uh, but I I I do think as long as crypto is here to stay, it will be written about in the in the law books because it's going to be the first time that a lot of these sort of more standard legal issues are applied in a really big way. Celsius to uh, to a lesser extent, Voyager. It's going to be the first time a lot of these legal issues are applied in this context, like we just talked about on the fraudulent transfer. That's one of, you know, a whole bunch of issues that may be a little different because of the way crypto works. Um, 
The other thing, though, it, it kind of goes back to the regulation point is I, I don't think that we'll have another after this cycle. There may be a whole bunch more crypto bankruptcies in this cycle. We shouldn't have another crypto bankruptcy that looks exactly like this one, because hopefully some lessons will be learned from this one that will result in regulations or just different business practices that will you know, prevent the next one. One other question I have, and I'm sorry I'm keeping you guys so much over time, but... No, this is very interesting. You can keep us as long as you want. Thanks. You made an interesting point, Dan, about how the people who receive money from Sam, charity donations, speculative startups, are you suggesting that it is possible that creditors or or different groups of creditors could sue uh, some of the startups, the projects that FTX invested in? So anytime there's a bankrupt estate that isn't paying out creditors in full, you're going to have uh, you know the fiduciaries for that estate, whether it's the debtor or in you know a post-confirmation trustee or a creditors committee or somebody, is going to be sniffing out ways to bring money back into the estate. And one of the things that they're going to look at is where did money go out where value didn't come back? And to the extent money went out and value didn't come back, that's a natural target for a fraudulent conveyance lawsuit or a fraudulent transfer lawsuit. And so I think it'll not be the, the other creditors who are suing those folks because the claims are likely owned by the FTX estate. Uh, but I do think that you know, again, to the extent there's a shortfall and creditors aren't being paid in full, um, certainly the estate fiduciaries are going to have to look at where money went and to the extent, you know, they can recover it, I assume they'll try. That will be interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, well, I, I agree with what Dan just said. You know, you're, you're every party that received funds from any of these companies those transactions, whatever they are, whether they were donations, whether they were investments, whether they were they were you know actual commercial transactions involving coin or involving cash, they're going to get reviewed. And where it would appear that someone received money or value uh, uh, in some way at a time when these companies were insolvent uh, and didn't provide what's called fair consideration, which is a, a bankruptcy code term and a state law term, then those people are at risk for potentially being sued. Uh, there are defenses that, that that are available to some of them, depending on the, the fact pattern. Um, but again, I, I suspect that that's why this case is going to be a very litigious case, because when those happen, and you're talking about a lot of different parties, it takes a very long time. It takes a long time to to bring the cases, it takes a long time to settle the cases, and then it takes a long time to distribute all those all the money that may be collected from all those people. So, um, you know, as, as I think as you said, Sullivan and Cromwell is going to be a, a large beneficiary of this <laughs> of this case. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting for sure, and we'll continue to watch it here. I think this is going to, you know, consume twenty percent of my brain power for the next decade, which is pretty unfortunate when you think about it um it's probably the same for us so that you know you're, you're in good company at least exactly brothers in arms thanks guys so much for taking the time to chat with us today yeah thanks for having us yeah it was my pleasure once again we've been joined today by our guests dan besikoff partner at loeb and loeb as well as our guest mark shapiro partner and chair of the financial restructuring group at Sherman and Sterling. Gentlemen, is there a venue or place where our listeners can learn more about you and, and what you are working on? Dan? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you Google my name, uh, certainly my firm's website comes up. I have a Twitter account at Dan Besikoff, but it tends to be uh, Minnesota sports related more than it is uh, <laughs> relating to business. So if you're a fan of the Vikings, the Twins, or the Timberwolves, it's a it's a good place to go. There is the occasional crypto nugget on there, um, but th those are the spots. 
Same for me. We have uh, Sherman Sterling, and our, our uh, website is Sherman, S-H-E-A-R-M-A-N.com. And you can find me there, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for being on the show. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest, or maybe two. Have an awesome day.